You're listening to Horse Racing Heroes, Episode 5, Champagne Fever. Yes, lads. Who knows it? Welcome along to Episode 5 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips or current affairs chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. My name is Mark Walsh, and this episode is about the popular front-running grey and two-time Cheltenham Festival winner, that we all know should be three, Champagne Fever. And I am delighted to be joined on this episode by two fantastic guests. Firstly, we have Patrick Mullins, the most successful amateur jockey of all time, of all time, and assistant to his father Willie, who trained the horse. And we've also got Ruby Walsh, the winning most jockey in Cheltenham Festival history. Two men who both had the privilege of riding Champagne Fever to victory at the Cheltenham Festival. So it's Patrick you'll primarily hear from throughout the episode, but we do switch to Ruby, um, speaking about riding the horse in the Supreme and the heartbreak in the Arkle and some of the other big days. And just before we begin, I'm just going to quickly say that if you have been enjoying the series so far, um, I've set up a Patreon page for the podcast. The link is in the show notes, or you can also get a link to it on horseracingheroes.com. And it's just a way for you to support me, support the show, help me recoup some of the expenses involved so far, and to give me the means and encouragement to continue to make more episodes. So enough about that before I cringe myself to death. Please enjoy Patrick Mullins and Ruby Walsh telling us all about Champagne Fever. So uh, to kick off, Patrick, could you tell me how Champagne Fever came to find himself in the Mullins yard and in the ownership of Rich and Susanna Ritchie? Yeah, well, we, um, we obviously he won a point-to-point very impressively in a place called Quakerstown, which wouldn't be a traditional um, strong strong meeting, perhaps. Um, at the time, it would have been unusual for a horse to come out of there um, to make a lot of money. But he won really impressively by 10 lengths. Um, he was about 16-3, fine big horse, uh, lots of scope, lots of size. Um, Tom and Amara trained him. Um, he was very, he was very uh, keen on him. And um, Willie ended up buying him privately for, for Rich at the time. So it would have been 2011. Um, so it would have been just kind of at the start of, near enough to start Rich's time with us. You know, he probably would have started with us 2007, um, 2007, 2008. Michael Dagny, I think, was his first Cheltenham winner in 2008. So um, we, Willie was on the lookout for good horses for him. And this fella stuck his hand up when he, when he won very impressively in Quakerstown. Okay, so he already had his name, Champagne Fever, at that point? He was already, he was already named. Um, I think Thorman might have named a few of them Champagne this and Champagne that. Um, so, no, he already had his name, but uh, one of the better names in the air, I think. We, we definitely got good sport out of it after any of the victories, anyway. Yeah, for sure. So then, what was he like then when he gets to your yard? What's he like at home as a horse? Um, he, like I say, he was very tall, uh, and he did have that kind of... What, you, what people call that kind of look of eagles. He, he would always be maybe looking off into the distance um, over the horizon. Um, possibly with one of those horses, you're, you're kind of wondering, did, did, he see, did he see dead people or see other things? You know, he was always kind of looking past where you were. Um, he was an, an easy, straightforward ride, but D- Dermot Keeling, who is one of our senior riders, he's been there. He's been with us now probably 10 years at this stage. Um, he'd be a good, hardy fellow. He was riding him out. Um, I remember riding him a few, a few times, riding work and stuff. And what struck me about him was 
how narrow his girth was. I um, mean, you know, we would always been taught good, strong, deep girth is a, a big sign of a is a good sign of a, a good horse because you know they have the lungs and the um, capacity to get the air into their into their lungs. And, but he was quite a narrow horse. It, you know, his girth used to come quite high both sides of the saddle. Um, and I do remember thinking, hmm, is, is that a good sign or is it not a good sign? But as it turned out, it didn't make any difference. He was a very good horse. Um, but he used to live in the Green Barn, um, which uh, Hurricane Fly was also in there at that time. So they would have been um, partners. And uh, from day one, he showed an awful lot. And, you know, we, we thought he used to cover some amount of ground. That was his big thing. He had this big, long stride. And he used to do everything, everything very easy at home. Um, we, were, we were definitely very excited about him. Yeah, so that, that point, point to point you mentioned was in April of 2011. And his first run then was in December of that year. So it's a long enough wait before he has his first run under rules for you. Yeah, not unusual for us. I mean, we would obviously bought him late April, early May. Um, he would have probably came to our yard for a couple of weeks and then got out in the summer holidays. So our horses usually go out after Punchstown and come back in after Galway. And really then they're not ready to run until November, um, late November, December. So we would usually put away some of our good ones too. You might, they might pop up in Fairy House in the Royal Bond meeting. Or you might put one away for Stephen's Day in Leprosan. Traditionally they'd be too, even though they're just normal bumpers with normal prize money there, where you might send your, your good ones. Yeah, so he goes to the bumper in Leopardstown. Um, he's beaten, but... but by a good horse who would win a Galway hurdle and a couple of premier handicaps in the flat. Um, did you learn a bit about him that day at Leopardstown? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, no, we were we couldn't see him getting beaten. He was doing some fantastic work at home. Um, he, he was doing everything on the bridle very easy. Uh, we thought we thought he'd win. We and uh, we it looked like everything was going to plan. He was a bit keen. As it kind of rode a normal enough race up third or fourth. Um, turned in, hit the front, and Tom Edison's just come by us in the last kind of furlong and a half. And um, we were we were we were devastated, you know, because like I said, he was an expensive horse. He was for a good owner. He was doing all the work, and um, we were very very disappointed. But like you said, Thomas Edison came out and won a goal with Hurdle, and he had plenty of pace. Um, so what Willie's take on it was that he was just doing everything too easy at home. Like I said, he was doing everything on the bridle, and I I I can't remember us being as hard on a horse in the next couple of weeks. Um, I remember Willie was putting me up to ride and work and usually we'd ride our work and the horses would finish together, they'd finish on the bridle. Um, but Willie got me four or five times to come from behind and send them four or five lengths past the other horse um, to teach them to lengthen, to stretch and to make them work. Willie's view was that he was doing everything too easy at home and he perhaps wasn't as fit as a horse who was finding things to, harder to do at home. Um, so that is, there were two things. Well, I was, we, we took that out of it. And also, like I said, I remember thinking I probably should have made more use of him because he has that long, uh, that long stride with that high cruising speed. So they were the two things we took out of the defeat. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So he's made work hard at home. <clears throat> and then next time you go out to Fairy House in January and you make plenty of use of him and he, he bolts up. Yeah, yeah. Let him, let him bowl along. And I remember going down by Ballyhack and usually in Fairy House, that's where I'd be maybe taking a pull, getting him to come back at half stride, get a breather. And I remember just thinking, uh, I remember just giving him a click. At that stage, sending him forward rather than taking him back, which is what I would have usually done. And um, yeah, he won 10-12 
14 links maybe he went a long way yeah and was that the confirmation that day right this fellow he's on the boat to Cheltenham that was it yeah he he booked his ticket then um but obviously he blotted his copybook but he was back in the back on the back on the Cheltenham ticket okay so talk to me about Cheltenham then that day he's He's uh, a bigger price than a stablemate, Peak Sue, which has Ruby on board. Um, your fellas is 16 to one shot. But I'm, I'm guessing expectations were pretty high and you had your tactics kind of sorted. Yeah, Peak Sue had gone to um, Leperstown and won very well. Different type of horse. Um, a horse with a lot of gears. Uh, you know, a very quick horse. Um, and he'd obviously gone and won up in Leperstown, which is always a good sign. Um, so Willie decided to put me on champagne fever and ruby on peak sue um, like i said two different types your man we were we wanted to go forward and make it a strong gallop and ruby was going to be coming late and using his speed on peak sue and i remember earlier that day it was the last race on wednesday so i'd ridden in on the national Hunt chase the four mile chase earlier in the day on a horse called ali guard and he'd fallen down the back and i brought down our other horse sol with katie walsh and, and sol is about 18 hands a huge big horse so I got up and you know fairly straight away I, I, I'd cracked my collarbone, but obviously I wanted to, to ride your man. So um, got back into the Jeep Grand, back in, and you have to do a few, you have to show that you're okay. So lift your arms and all that. I remember kind of gritting my teeth, getting, getting through that. And when, you, when your adrenaline is up and it's not, like it wasn't broken like that, it, it was just cracked. Um, so getting it done was quick while my adrenaline was still pumping. And... That was fine. And then going over to Ruby and kind of asked what he thought. So he brought me over to McCoy and McCoy gave me a couple of painkillers. I don't think I knew I was floating on air going out, going out for um, the champion bumper. I couldn't feel my, <laughs> couldn't feel any pain anyway. And, uh, but I, I was in bad form as well. I got beaten. I think Scott Irish had broken his leg the day before in the cross country chase early on. So I was going out in a particular mindset. We can imagine obviously being disappointed from that and a bit, a bit sore. And I remember just saying, just roll down the start, tasting it up and just letting him roll, uh, letting him, letting him go. And he didn't, he didn't bowl, but he got to a certain speed and he was happy there. And we, we didn't get hassled and we turned down the hill and just let him roll down the hill, crossing the road then, which is about three furlings out and sending him on, which is quite early, quite early there, but sending him on anyway. And I think Ruby came up one side of me on peak Sue. And Barry Gaird was coming on the other side on the favourite New York New Year's Eve, um, and turning in. And obviously, I'm, I'm usually I'm in Jelton. Usually, I'm sticking the right hand. Having one attempt at trying to hit my right hand, wasn't able to. So pulled it into my left, used it in my left up the straight. Uh, going past the wing to the last, I thought we were beaten. I thought Peak Sue would come. He'd gone, uh, but New Year's Eve looked like he was going to go by us. And then the last two hundred yards, Shaman uh, Fever just kept pulling it out. His, his superior stamina probably saw it out. The second and third were. Flat horses, really, at the end of the day. Peak Sue won, won in Royal Ascot. And New Year's Eve was John, one of John Ferguson's. But it was a hugely strong bumper. Um, Jeski was back in the field. The new one was back in the field. Um, I'm pretty sure Manny Clouds was back in the field. So you had Champion Herd winners, Supreme Novice winners, Royal Ascot winners, Grand National winners. It was an extraordinary race. Yeah, it's an incredible race. We were, I, was, I had You were ticking off all the names I was going to mention in the form book there. So riding a Champion bumper winner with a broken collarbone, not a bad feat. Uh, what do you do to celebrate that? Uh, well, yeah, crossing the line didn't do any celebrations. I was just <laughs> quite happy to stop moving it. Um, but it was it was brilliant to you know a great picture. It's a picture I, I I'm very proud of. You know, Ruby on one side and Barry on the other side. That's um, a picture 
um, that you know I, I couldn't put a value on. And so that night we went to Twenty One Club and we we found some champagne fever. Yeah, we had a great. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think. Um, I wasn't riding the rest of the week back then. I, I wasn't riding. You know, you just had your couple of rides uh, through the week, so I was able to. Uh, I was able to enjoy it uh, after that. Having a couple of drinks strictly out of the left hand. Um, <laughs> It takes it takes a lot of confidence to go out and make all in in the champion bumper at Cheltenham. Is there any method to it? Do you count seconds per furlong, or are you per just letting the horse get into his rhythm and roll along? Um, no, we, uh, um, I mean, look, my tactics were my tactics weren't necessarily to make it, but they were not to pull up, not to take him back. Um, the view was that if I was pulling out of him, I was going too slow. So to let him use his stride, let him be comfortable. You're when you're when you're when you're going forward or when you're making the running, as it turned out, we, we did make the running, um, you're trying to stay in, for want of a better word, the green zone of your horse's speedometer. Um, you know, that, that if, as long as they're relaxed, which he was, and they're not racing, so they're head down, their ears back, like he was going along with his ears pricked in front, nice and relaxed, taking a breath. Um, the first two furlongs are downhill, so you don't mind maybe rolling a little bit faster than you should there. Uh, like a normal uh, human race, um, you can get a bit of a breeder around the bend. You run uphill around the first bend, and then you run down again. So I let him roll down there, all the way in Cheltenham. You're turning, 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 um, which, which you know, which can help settle a horse because they're not always just seeing a big long straight in front of them. With him, like with him, you weren't getting breeders anywhere. You were just letting them roll every time. It was a downhill, letting them roll, letting them fill himself up when he was going around a bend or going up a hill. And like I said, I probably sent him on earlier than you usually would um, crossing the road. But that was that was our plan going out. Uh, so if we got beat because of it, that was that was what we had thought we would do. And would you ever indulge yourself and watch the replay back the odd time? Um, just I haven't watched it in a long time now. Uh, this was eight years ago now, yeah. But um, I do have the DVD. I got the DVD of, of it uh, because... Didn't, I didn't originally have it. We just had it recorded, of course. But I got the DVD of it maybe two years ago. So it's there. If I'm ever having a bad day, I can, I can watch it back. But I haven't in a while. But I might do now with the, with the lockdown. <laughs> yeah. So he, he goes to Punchestown then. Um, he wins very easily. And geez, the conditions, I watched it back. The conditions were shocking that day. They were. That was the, the, the year. I think, I think there were no chases in that, that Punchestown festival. I think the chases were all called off. Or they were at least on a couple of the days. It was absolutely um, monsoon-like. I mean... I mean, Richie Galway and his team deserve a huge credit for, for having the, the thing at all. Um, and I would say Punchstown is usually a front-running track, but of course, on that ground, you're wondering, is it the right thing to do to be out in front? But look, we, we had said that was it had worked, that was our tactics. They had worked. Um, and he was tough again. Got a hard race in, in Punchdown. Jamie Codrode, Melodic Rendezvous, who came around the home bend and looked like he was going to put it up to us. But again, Sammy Fever in the last furling, a bit like Cheltenham, um, stuck it out very well. So he was, I think at that stage, he was maybe only the second horse. I think he was only the second horse at that stage to have done the double. I think Cousin Vinny did it in 2008 and Shimmy Fever. And then maybe Don Guib might have done it. I think he was after Shimmy Fever. Um, he goes novice hurling then, but I, I read a quote from Willie saying he was considering doing a Florida Pearl with him and going, skipping hurling altogether and just going chasing. Was that right? Yeah, I mean, that's always an option. But Willie, he, he did it with Florida Pearl, as you said, he won champ bumper went straight back and won the Royal Alliance the next year. Um, he also did it with Miss That, won champ bumper, um, and he went back. He didn't win the Arco, but he 
I think he got a fright on the water fence that year, but he won the Irish Arca. Um, so and this fella had obviously won his point of point. He had the size and scope to go straight chasing. So it was a consideration, but he decided to go down the more conventional route um, and go hurdling. Mm. So when he goes hurdling, then he, he bolts up in his maiden. Um, he runs well in defeat behind Jeski in the Royal Bond. And then next time out in January 2013, he's a one to four shot in the grade two. And he's, he doesn't give us running. Something's amiss with him. I'm, I'm reading a respiratory tract infection. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think he just, I think he just scoped out after the race. Um, my memory, with a bit, a bit of mucus. Um, I think that would be my memory of it. But as you said, it was too bad to be true. So mm. when a horse does that, you just, you, you just put a line through it. Um, and you just try to get, the, get them back, get them, give them some antibiotics, give them an easy time of it. And then when you think that they're back to form, they're eating well, they're starting to show a bit of life, um, you start working them again. And, and it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, certainly not. He, in February then, he goes to the grade one at Leopardstown, the Deloitte Novice Hurdle, and he wins there. Again, that bounced out, made all. Um, wasn't hugely impressive. I think Bright New Dawn might have been second, Kings and Horses of Desi's. Um, so obviously he got back on track he, back, he won the grade one um, but it wasn't flashy but he wasn't a flashy horse the way he used to run But um, so he went to Cheltenham probably a little under the radar still yeah he was he was he was a double figure priced in like the week prior to Cheltenham but on the day or certainly the day before he, he shortens up he ends up going off at five to one uh, joint second favourite so there must have been a reasonable amount of confidence at home leading up to the festival yeah, my memory is he was working particularly well a couple of weeks before Cheltenham, and I think he might have done a, a really good bit of work in the in the Curra maybe the week before. Um, so we were very sweet, and I'm going there. And I know plenty of fellas in the yard had a, had a few quid at I think 16s and 14s and 12s. There was there was a very big cheer in it when he when he uh, passed the post. But he was um, we went over there thinking thinking he could follow up. Um, but it's not an easy thing to do. I think there's very few champion bumper winners have come out and won a novice race at Shetland the very next year. I think you can count it on one hand. Ruby, I'm going to take you back to the 12th of March, 2013, around half past one. It's uh, the Supreme Novices Hurdle. You're on the back of Champagne Fever and your good friend AP McCoy is on the back of the favourite, my tent or yours. And uh, just wondering if you could talk me through the race, really. Yeah, I probably gave Jetski as big a chance as well, Mark. Obviously, Jetski had beaten Champagne Fever in the Royal Bond in December, and Jetski had then gone to Leprechaun at Christmas and bolted in as well. So I thought he was a huge runner as well. I just didn't see it as trying to beat my tent or yours. Um, obviously, Champagne Fever had a kind of an up and down season. He'd won first time up in Cork when Paul Townend rode him. I rode him behind Jetski. He was run over. He'd run pretty bad behind Rule the World and Nace. Then Paul rode him in Leopardstown. In February, I was in Newbury when he beat Bright, Bright New Dawn, which looked workmanlike more than spectacular. And he was a pretty big price heading to Cheltenham. But it was like he turned a switch in him between February and March. And his work had started to improve and he'd started to, to blossom, really. I suppose the one thing we were thinking was maybe his jumping was how we could get him to jump quick enough to win a Supreme. But the closer I got to Cheltenham, the more we were starting to fancy, the more we were starting to fancy him. And Patrick had always been adamant that if you were pulling out of him, you were going too slow, that he was just jump out, fall over and let him rock and roll. So they were my tactics, but I thought he had a big chance. There was plenty of plenty of pace in the race, but I was adamant I was just going to bounce him out. And whether I was in front or I was fourth, I was just going to be going nearly as fast as Champagne Fever could go. And he, he broke really well. 
I knew my tent to yours would be coming from a little bit off the pace because he was a bit keen. Jet ski was probably going to be sort of fifth, six, seven, somewhere, maybe towards the inside. So I knew if I got to the front or on the front end and could keep pouring on the pressure, they'd have to come and get me. And it looked like they were coming to get you, turning for home. Uh, AP looms up beside you. Yeah, he, he kicked the third last out of the ground on the two, had ranged up on his outside under Davy Russell, and he kind of flattened the third last, but he jumped the second last much better. And we were rounding off the bend. Even though they were coming to me, I could feel champagne fever picking up, and I was thinking, well, he's going to go a little bit quicker, and he's definitely going to get to the winning post. So these are going to have to quicken up to get past him. And we rounded off the bend, and AP arrived on my outside. Now, I couldn't see where Puppy was or how he was going, but I remember drifting a little bit towards the middle of the track to keep close to my tent of yours. I knew Champagne Fever was tough, and I wanted to be in a battle. I didn't want to be isolated over on the far side all on my own. I wanted to be right beside him. So down to the last, AP was coming on my outside. Champagne Fever was really starting to, to dig in but I knew I needed a good jump. I knew if I fluffed it, I wasn't going to win. Thankfully, we met it on a, on a long enough stride and he, he pinged the hurdle. Jet ski was on my other side. But I knew when we landed and my tent of yours didn't get by me. He only barely got by me, but didn't go away from me. I was thinking, this is going to be a scrap. And the more it turned into a scrap, the more I fancied my chances. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I mean, it's kind of, it's a classic scenario yourself and AP battling up the hill and you, you beat him by a length or a half length, I think it was. I mean, how satisfying is that, particularly in the first race of the festival as well? I don't think I ever got any more satisfaction out of beating AP than I did out of beating anybody else. To me, it was about winning the race and who was runner up. It, it didn't really, it didn't, I didn't think we, because it was AP that was second. I, I didn't ever feel that way. To me, it was only ever about winning. And I guess it's always or was always great to get a winner in Cheltenham early. And there's no better way to get it than to win the first. And but just I knew the last fifty yards or maybe a little bit more that I had him, that I had my ten to yours beaten. And those last five, six strides when you know you're going to win in the first race in Cheltenham on one that people have ploughed into as well. You can almost you can feel the crowd, you can feel the atmosphere. And yeah, it's a feeling that makes the hair stand in the back of your neck, but it was a great day. Ruby gave a fantastic ride. And it's one, it's a, for me, it's one of the great races that I saw in Cheltenham because it was Ruby Wall, Tony McCoy, down to the last, you know, JP's colours, Rich's colours, head to head. Um, they winged it together. Um, I mean, Ruby, I think, you know, he changed his stick, was left to his right uh, quicker than a blink. Um, and he got he got back up and beat him. Um, now, I think my turn to yours was second four times at the festival. I think himself... Melon and uh, get me out of here. I have that a joint that joint record. Um, and Jesse was back in third, so it was a very strong race. Um, but for me, it it's a race that uh, lives in my memory because we watched it down at the last and the roar um, as they jumped the last. Obviously, the supreme everyone was and it was was get me out of here the favorite. No, Jesse. Uh, my tent to yours. My, my tent to yours. Sorry, yeah. So it it was just a fantastic race, and once again, like I, like I said, his bumpers, he just. His last furlong, he, he he didn't, he always say he stick his head down. He used to have a very high head carriage, funnily enough. Um, but he had his ears back and you could see his will, his will to win. And you see that with those real good horses, the likes of Perkin Fly, Key Vega. In the last furlong, they understand the point of what you're asking to do. They have that intelligence. And that is worth, and it's worth as much as, as, you know, having the ability or being able to jump well or being able to settle well. And um, that can tell, tell in, the last, in the last 100 yards the difference between winning or losing, and he definitely had that. Yeah, you can see that. It's interesting about the high head carriage because to a, 
a mug punter like me, that's I hear high head carriage and automatically assume that's a bad thing. Yeah, a lot of times it is. You know, sometimes it means they're not getting enough oxygen in, um, or they're sore. Uh, you know, you want to be sore somewhere that when they have to lengthen, they come back up. But um, he, from day one, he just he had that high head carriage, and he always used to remind me of um, you, I don't know if you know in the Star in the Star Wars movies, the big uh, four-legged kind of gray. Um, I don't know, I can't remember what they're called, but he, he just he he did he did have that kind of look about him. He he had his own shape and his own style, and um, but he was a very genuine horse. Yeah, I didn't expect my lack of Star Wars knowledge to embarrass me. <laughs> <in the laughs> um, punches down afterwards. Jezky uh, turns the form around pretty emphatically. Uh, was everything okay with Champagne Fever that day? He was below par, definitely. Um, below par, definitely. He probably had a very hard race in Shetland to win. Um, you know, he'd ran January, February, March, going back April. It might just be the end of a long season. Um, I don't recall anything obvious coming to light, but it was obviously way below his, his form in Jutland. Yeah, so then he goes novice chasing, wins his beginners very easily at Punchestown, and then he goes for the grade one at Leopardstown at Christmas and gets into a duel with uh, Defy Logic. And that must have been a, a frantic pace with the two of them going at it up front. Yes, uh, Defy Logic was very keen on his JPs, Paul Nolan's. Um, and it looked like they probably just did too much in front. Um, and usually Shami Fever wasn't a particularly keen horse. Um, but, no, uh, you know, like I said, I, I think it just, as you said, they, they got into a bit of a duel, probably cut one just throws a little bit. Um, he made a mistake. And Votor, uh, in that race, hasn't been, has been hit and miss for us. I remember Votor making a really bad mistake in it one year and getting beaten as well. Um, it's that... that that track in Lepson, I think it's one of the best chasing tracks in, in England, Ireland. Because down the back straight, you turn down, you have five in a row and you just can't miss a beat. So um, obviously he had to brush up his jumping after that. Yeah, he missed a couple of intended targets then between uh, Christmas and Cheltenham. Was, was, did he have any setbacks or was it just nothing suited? Um, nothing serious. Um, he might have maybe had a couple of dirty scopes again. I can't recall exactly, but... Um, it would have been, he preferred to have got another run into him, all right. Um, but sometimes that is impossible. And we generally tend to send our horses to shut them off at the back of two, three, four runs. So it wasn't the end of the world. He had that, he had that point of point experience and he ran in grade one. So Willie wasn't afraid to go there without another run. You know, I always think Willie looks for reasons not to run, um, whereas a lot of other trainers look for a reason to run. And you know, if Willie thinks the horse isn't at his best and isn't going to win, he'd rather keep him at home, get him 100% and then go. Um, he's never thinking, you know, I need three or four runs before this horse goes to Shelton. Mm. Is that just yourself and Willie are just confident enough in the ability to get them get them fit, get get them enough education at home? Yeah, like it'd be different maybe if he was coming, for, if he was a horse that hadn't had the point-of-point experience or, you know, he was a horse that uh, who needed a lot of uh, practice but uh, you know if you think that they have if you think they're good enough uh, we think we can get them ready at home yeah. So going from the first race that year to the second race the following year uh, the Arkle um, he's reason he, he goes off joint favourite but his preparation hadn't been ideal he'd, he'd been beaten in the Irish Arkle uh, by Defy Logic and there was some question marks over his jumping then yeah, he'd won over two and a half at Pontchastown first time up. Uh, pretty ordinary race. He was odds on. He bolted in, went to Leperstown, made a bad mistake at the second last in the grade one novice chase at Christmas. Defy Logic won it. 
he hadn't run against since. So his third run of offences was the Arkle, but we'd schooled him plenty at home. We were fairly confident about his jumping. Um, he had to turn the form around with Trifolium, who had been second to Defy Logic. Defy Logic had gotten injured and he wasn't turning up, but it was going to be a, a good race. And I guess from having that feeling the year before from the back of the last that I was getting back on top, that's still a race that I can't believe I didn't win. The early part of the race, at least, his jumping is unbelievable. So I can only imagine what it's like for a jockey to be on the back of a novice chaser, jumping around Cheltenham like that. It was incredible. But he never, my memory of it was he never missed a beat anywhere. Hmm. He jumped spectacularly. And I remember turning down the hill, pouring on a little bit of pressure without going ballistic, jumped third last really well, which he hadn't done in the Supreme, getting into the dip to meet the rising ground onto the home turn. And he's starting to lengthen ping the second last and send him I've no reason to believe he's not going to get to the winning post he'd won a two and a half mile beginners he'd gone hammer and tongs in a Cheltenham bumper and in a supreme so if you found something that works why would you change it so I sent him off the bend ping the second last to the last pings it landed and I don't think he stopped not for one minute he kept going all the way to the line but this thing way out in the middle of the track in blue colours just came and mugged me like I'd gotten beside my tent of yours the year before. Tom Scudamore kept way, my, kept so far away from me. Champagne fever didn't even see him coming. You'd seen off all the principles, the likes of Trifolium and all, one by one, they all start to crack. And then, I mean, how's it feel when this fellow comes out of the blue and just mug you on the line? I kind of got the feeling that most of the, I know he was 11 to 4 joint favourite, but when a 50 to 1 shot or whatever price Western and Warhorse was comes and does you, you can just feel that eerie quietness in Cheltenham. And I was feeling the same way as everybody else. I pull up thinking, how did he just lose? He'd done everything so right. I couldn't believe that he lost. And you're standing there thinking, my God. Like, you're riding a novice, having his third one over fences, who doesn't miss a beat, pings the last and lands a couple in front, doesn't stop and still doesn't win. It just, it was an eerie feeling. But Cheltenham being Cheltenham, you have to somehow bottle those thoughts and those emotions between there and the parade ring and think about your next race. Yeah, I know you used to analyse your ride as what could I have done differently, you know, to improve the position. There isn't really anything you can do differently in that article. Uh, yeah, look, of course you can. You can say, well, you would do things in order to win the race that don't make sense. So yeah, I would have drifted into the middle of the track so that I would uh, be within eye shot of any challengers. But theoretically, I always rode the shortest way was to stay on the rail. You go to the front, make everybody come round you. You have the running rail to guide you all the way up. It would break all the rules I believe in. But in order to win that race, I should have gone to the middle of the track. I mean, he put up an exhibition um, from the front that day. Again, uh, his jumping was was fabulous. You know, he round the home bend, you're very happy over the second last, very happy. He wins the last, that's it. He'll win. You know, he doesn't get beaten the last part on this horse. Um, and then Western Warhorse, who I think David Pipe didn't even want to run. I think the owner suggested he run. And he was very much run, I th- ridden to run well, I think. Um, very keen horse. And he just comes and nabs him. Nabs him. I, I would have said he nabs him after the line. Even watching it back, it looks like he nabs him after the line. But he got there in time. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it was, again, a bit the opposite end of the spectrum from the screen offices. The, the, the low of thinking we had it won, having it in your hands and then having it snatched from you in the last millisecond. Um, it was it was a, a low blow, but uh, 
I mean, you couldn't fault the horse. He gave us all. He jumped fantastic. And it was just one of those results, unfortunately. Did you did you torture yourself by going and looking at Western War Horse's form? No. Did he win again? <laughs> <laughs> did he? He ran once again, but it was no good. But even prior to that, he was getting beaten off 125 in the handicap hurdles that season. And you're dead right. David Pipe didn't want to run him. The owner uh, wanted to. So yeah, just one of those, um, one of those, one of those things that can that can happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, this was this was his third Cheltenham in a row, and when he's run super, what what do you think it was about Cheltenham? Was it just the way you trained him, or did he like the track, or did he just come good at that time of year? Difficult to say. Uh, I suppose he was he was a very good jumper. He did a lot of jumping in Cheltenham, um, but obviously he won the bumper as well. Um, it's probably if you, you know if you have a horse with a high cruising speed that can get a relatively uncontested lead, um, it is a it is a great place to make the running. Um, and probably for those three races, he was able to get to the front without being overly hassled as like he was in Leprosome. Um yeah, it's hard to say exactly what suited him, but I think probably the, the, you would, the stiff uphill finish to me suited him, um, although it appeared maybe possibly to cost him in the ankle. But um, like I said, he was always strong to the last furlong, usually. Difficult to say, really. And then his next major target, I would say, was next year, was the King George later that year. Um, it seemed to be going well for the, the first, for most of the race. And then to my eye, he, it seemed like he didn't see it out all that well. What, what was the verdict? Of that performance, that was the same verdict we came to. Um, you know, and he was always a horse we were thinking of stepping up and trip. Um, you know, there was like the likes of uh, being a few horses gone from the kind of Arkle up to the Gold Cup, like Kicking King and Best Mate. I think have both done it. Um, so that was where we were thinking of of getting to. Um, went to King George, and yeah, like you say, didn't really stay. And I think I remember at the time. There was a school of thought that perhaps stowaways didn't quite see out three miles. Um, that even though a lot of them looked like they wanted it, that they perhaps didn't really see it out. Now, I know Outlander went and, went and was very good over three miles after it, but I think on a whole, they were probably two and a half, two, two, and a half, two six horses. Um, and that was the conclusion we came to after Gintel. Um So the King George that, that, that year, December 2014, I spoke to Patrick, the verdict seemed to be that he just didn't stay. So how does it feel to be on a horse who's travelling well and then suddenly just doesn't stay the rest of the trip? Yeah, look, we geared his his um, whole season at a tilt at the King George. Um, you know, he'd been beaten by Western Warhorse, disappointed in Punchestown, started back. Paul rode him in the Clonmel oil chase. I was suspended. Um, he beat Alderwood and his next run was going to be the King George. So um, I flew to Kempton Christmas Eve uh, schooled him down the back straight in Kempton that morning uh, flew back I got the 6.40 flight over landed in Heathrow at 8 o'clock I was in Kempton just before quarter to nine schooled him was back in the car quarter past nine and got the 11 off flight flight home on Christmas Eve um, you know just because Willie always maintained the fences in Kempton were a little different so he schooled down the back straight in Kempton that morning uh, went back Stevens' this morning to ride him race went fine Sylvia Nacco Conti was on the front end stamina was a worry and he wasn't going quick so I was thinking this is great no fairly is dictating it but he's not going hard it's going to suit me but I should have known if you don't stay you don't stay it doesn't matter how fast they go or how slow they go if you're not going to get the trip you're not going to get the trip and yeah you just when you turned in and you were expecting him to pick up he didn't I was close enough going to three out but by the time we got to the back of the second last my race was spent 
And then the last fence, when you're on a horse that's tired and getting a bit empty, the last fence looks like it's starting to grow and get taller <laughs> because you haven't got much energy left. But he clambered out over that and finished fourth. I don't know when you look at it, when you went beyond his trip, did he ever really recover from it? And next, next he goes to the Kinloch Bray over two and a half. And for the one and only time in his career, he fell while contesting with Don Cossack, who'd obviously go on and win a gold cup. Uh, he was okay after that, though, was he? He was, again, another fantastic race to watch. Um, you know, they went head-to-head down the, down the straight in Thurlis. Probably one of the best races ever ran in Thurlis. Um, you know, Don Cossack, who hadn't won the Gold Cup at that stage. No. No, yeah. So, and I think we were maybe getting a pound or two off him. And the result was still in the, still in the, still in the air coming down to last. Don Cossack was maybe just probably getting the best of it, um, would be my memory of it. And Ruby went for an all-or-nothing jump at the last, and the horse tried for him, uh, but didn't didn't quite make it. Uh, and you know they, they he got off. They were going at fair speed now. That that last fence in Thurlis, you run downhill to it and you pick up a lot of speed to it. So he got up, and um, he was fine. Thank God. You know when you get a fall at that speed at that um, at the last, you always have your heart in your mouth. But uh, again, he lost nothing in defeat there. And then it was just a case of trying to get him back on track uh, before Cheltenham. Uh, yeah, so the Red Mills then was obviously at a local track in Goran, um, two and a half miles again, looked an ideal race to get his confidence back, to get him, get him going. We love going. I, I always think there's something in, um, if you can go to your local track, I think a lot of trainers' horses run slightly above themselves at the local track. Um, you know, Goran is only 10 minutes from us and uh, the trip looked ideal and it's a proper big chasing track um, and he got the job done, so that was great to get his confidence back. Yeah, so confidence up, and he's going to Cheltenham for the champion chase. Um, he's he, it's not the strongest renewal, so he's kind of he's getting back into. I think he was second favorite at the time, and then I'll let you tell us about what happens. Yeah, we were going there once again. You know, thinking this is a horse with Cheltenham before who comes alive around Cheltenham in March, allowed Votor, and um, and we're thinking we're thinking we have a, a live chance, and he's sent over, and he's in beside. Um, a horse called Ona Two, who was lived beside him in his stable, which is why he, they were side by side. Um, and you know they, they were together in the green barn together. And when when we when they came off the lorry, it was appeared that they had a bit of a had a bit of handbags or something. Anyway, something must be said. Um, but uh, Ona Two had taken taken a chunk out of um, taken a chunk out of Champagne Fever, and unfortunately, it wouldn't have been possible to run him. Um, so one of those freak freak accidents and like I said the reason they were beside one another was because they, they lived beside each other you know there was, there was there was that level of thought put into what way they were put on the lorry <laughs> yet it still went arseways so uh, the best laid plans yeah what more can you do and do you remember where one or two finished at Cheltenham that year fourth maybe I don't, I don't really know no not, not, not quite that good alright <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't. I think he might have been fourth in Supreme that the, the uh, a few years back. Yeah, that's right. A few so, years back, they, they, they were similar horses. They were on the same trajectory all the way through their career. Yeah, must must have been a serious bite. He, he gave him to to, to it, it was, the horse out. Yeah, yeah, he it was it was he he took a a small chunk out of him. Like it would have been fine in. Uh, obviously, it was fine uh, in a couple of weeks, but just to run within within. Four or five days, it wasn't really possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of almost a bit of a theme. Not to remember salt and wounds, but yourself and particularly Rich, uh, Richie have been unbelievably unlucky in the for the champion chase. 
Yeah, I mean, Shaq and Persuade this year was extraordinary because he rode out that morning and uh, I saw him riding out and he was fine. Jeremy, Jeremy Keeling, funny enough, rides him out. And um, then I, I, when I got the race, someone said Shaq and Persuade was around and said, of course it does. He, he rode out this morning. And obviously between riding out and getting back to the stable yard, he stood on something, a stone, most obviously, but stood on something sharp that bruised his bruised his foot. And when a horse gets a stone bruise, it's they, they don't put any pressure on it for for 24 to 48 hours um, they, it, it's literally like uh, like they can't use their leg um, so just yeah an absolute freak occurrence again so back to Champagne Fever um, after the non-run at Cheltenham he goes to Aintree and punches Town, but he, he seems to be quite below himself both times yeah um, possibly I mean really there's no reason why the bite should have affected him at that stage um, it was healed up by then um so for some reason he he just seemed to tail off that season yeah mm. and then he's off for he doesn't have another run for 576 days so he i mean i'm assuming he injured himself somehow yeah i he would have got uh he, he had several little niggly injuries i don't think he ever i don't think he ever broke anything serious or you know did a tendon and like that but um it was kind of a case a bit like Black Hercules, every time we just got him nearly ready to run, something would go a little amiss or he'd pull out a little bit stiff or um, he'd have to miss. And then, of course, we weren't going to run him from sort of June, July, August. So from, you know, he would have ran and punched down. He would have missed the three months there anyway. He missed the next uh, he missed the next season with little problems. Then he would have missed the next summer because he wasn't going to run in the summer. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was nearly... Nearly two years time to go back to the track then, yeah. But eventually he gets back. He runs in Turles, uh, a listed race where he beats a Gold Cup winner, Lord Windermere, by a head. And I'm guessing at this point you kind of thought, right, we're we're back on track. He may not be what he once was, but there's still plenty of winning to be done with him. Yeah, it was two six that day. I think we, I think um, a listed race uh, t- taking on another Gold Cup winner at Turles. Yeah, he uh, an- another cracking race. I think he beat him ahead. You know, right. showed all his old, showed all his old um, determination and enthusiasm. Jumped well, looked like he enjoyed himself, and yeah, you're, at that stage you're thinking, right, we're we're back again, we'll get going, and um, and maybe maybe being a year too older, maybe now he'll stay three miles, um, but unfortunately it was never to be. He had, I think, fall. No, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same race. He fell in the Kinlock Bray. This was a different chase um, in November. It's actually was won by Footpad, I think, since, and might even be won by Kenboy in 2020 and um, it hasn't been staged at the time of recording but um yeah he 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 got a lead that day he over the first couple he was in front a long way out um, and just had too many gears for for lord windermere and rod frank um but it was a win but it didn't blow you away he'd been off for 500 odd days and um he came back and it was great to get any horse back to win a race but he probably didn't come back to the horse that he was he just we just couldn't keep him right. Um, lots of little things, uh, and eventually the decision was taken. The decision was taken to retire him because we just we just felt it wasn't fair. Um, obviously for whatever reason he wasn't up to taking training anymore. Um, so we retired him honourably, and he event. First of all, he went eventing in England um, with a man called Whittington, and I think he got on quite well there. And I believe now he's uh, retired from that, and he's with a friend of Rich's, um, just out, out in the field as a as a 
living out his retirement, really. Just enjoying himself, yeah. Um, I'm sure it's tough for you to rank your horses, and I know it's a bit of a cliched question, but he must be one you look back on fondly to win at Cheltenham in that style. Yeah, definitely. For me, he's he'll always be up the top of my horses because, like I said, to he did the double, which of course committed as well, but the, that was a rare thing to do at the time. He's done a few more times since. Um, Fiona did it as well. But, you know, to beat Ruby and Barry Garrity in a finish at Cheltenham um, was was special and will always be special. So that's something I wouldn't take for granted. And for that, uh, he'll definitely be a horse I'd always remember. Yeah, and, I like, and obviously his colour as well made him stand out. And like I said, he was a bit of a character. A bit, you know, a bit, uh, he was a bit uh, alternative uh, at times at home, but he... He definitely was one of the one of the one of the horses I won't forget. Fantastic! I think that's a brilliant note to end on, Patrick. Really enjoyed that. Thanks very much. Great, no problem at all, Mark. Sure, we'll chat to you soon. All right, there you have it. And if you're anything like me and bizarrely enjoy hearing how people say goodbye at the end of interviews, here's Ruby Walsh. Ruby, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. Here's Mark. Take care. Bye bye. Mind yourself. Bye bye. Mind yourself. The words of Ruby Walsh, and people say he's grumpy. Many thanks to Patrick and Ruby, both top men, very generous with their time. And my thanks also to Tom Nugent, who was very helpful in the making of this episode. I had no idea that Patrick had a cracked collarbone when he won the champion bumper, so that was great to learn. And I thought Ruby's description of uh, the moment he crossed the line in that article was fantastic too. My wounds still haven't healed, but I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, give us a retweet. Anything like that to help spread the word would be greatly appreciated. And if you've been enjoying the series in general and would like to help me to make more episodes, I ask that you consider doing the the virtual equivalent of buying me a pint as thanks, uh, which is to join my Patreon page. Um, In case you aren't familiar, Patreon is an app that lets you pay a few quid every month to content creators to show your support and also get some additional bonus content. The link is in the show notes, and it's also on horseracingheroes.com. And if you've never heard of Patreon before, uh, I promise you it's very safe, very quick and easy to use and set up, um, and becoming a patron on there would be massive for me, and get me a few quid back for all the expenses and time spent on the show so far, and uh, help me to go and make more episodes so we can keep this thing going. And I will be trying to put some additional content on there as well, if there's enough interest. And speaking of making more episodes, be sure to tune into episode 6 next week, which is about Roaring Lion, with two-time UK champion jockey Oshin Murphy. It's a great listen. It's even quite educational at times, so um, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. And now, the commentary music mashup ending. The song here is, quite predictably, Champagne Supernova by Oasis. And the commentary is the 2014 article by Mark Johnson, who kindly provided the intro you heard at the top of the show. And it's an, it's an incredible commentary, um, particularly the earlier mentions of Western Warhorse, knowing now what would eventually happen. Obviously, I was, I was tempted to use the, the bumper or the supreme winds, but it just had to be the article, didn't it? Didn't it? You have to have the bad days to make those good days even better. Yeah. If you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. And do you know which philosopher said that? Dolly Parton. And people say she's just a big pair of tits.
Arkle and it will be Champagne Fever who jumps it really well over in second Trifolian and then on the outside Valdez is in third and Dodging Bullets is in fourth Western Warhorse now is already beginning to hoist the white flag and then around the outside is Grand Away followed then by Ted Veal as now they begin to make the run down the hill on now towards a third from home and now Ruby Walsh begins to wind it up here on Champagne Fever and Trifolium and Brian Cooper tries to track them every step of the way Valdez is out wide followed then towards the inside by Dodging Bullets Western Warhorse to his credit is boxing on followed by Grand Away on the outside a bad mistake by Ted Veal and now a long run towards the first in the straight which will be the second from home Champagne Fever still clings the rail and clings to a tenuous lead to the outside is Trifolium but it's Champagne Fever who begins to kick off the turn he's got a length clear once again Trifolium now he's been driven Dodging Bullets tries to get through on the inside rail followed by Valdez and then Western Warhorse here's the second from home Champagne Fever he's repelling all Raiders Trifolium on the outside performance to win it at double digits. It was Western Wars and Tom Skidamore who must have got there on the line from Champagne Fever, but it will go to the judge. Tight.